Good evening, everyone. It is good to see a good crowd out on a Tuesday night, um, and I'm sure part of that is because it's not raining like it's been uh, almost every day recently. I want to welcome you tonight to the first of four lectures that are scheduled for the Tuesday nights uh, beginning tonight and for the next three weeks. And uh, we're excited that faculty members from the High Point University Religion and Philosophy Department will be delivering those all. Um, and I'm Mark Weekly. if you don't know, I'm the pastor of this church, but we have also three other churches where the other subsequent lectures will be. And I wanna just stand and introduce their pastors and people tonight too. Part of the reason for doing this together is to build community so that we can know uh, other people called Methodists. And if you're not Methodist tonight, if you came for any other reason, we're glad you're here. And I uh, hope that you are very blessed, as we all will be. So um, next week's lecture will be at Tabernacle United Methodist. And John Woods is here. We'll get him to stand. Yeah, stand, yeah. All right, Tabernacle people, wave your hand. Yeah. Oh, wow, good turnout, you all. Very good. All right, the next week, which will be the 2nd of April, uh, Gray's Chapel United Methodist Church, which is down below Climax. Uh, Jacob Kiker back there is the pastor. And I know we have a couple other folks at least from there. Who else? This from Grace Chapel? Back there. Very good. And then the last week, which will be the 9th of April, uh, will be at Bethlehem UMC in Climax. And Michael Swafford, or Mike, is there. And then Bethlehem folks, raise your hand. Very good. Very good. Some over here, too. Um, Wonderful. Well, if you need restrooms tonight, you can go through either of these doors and you will find them uh, back behind the, the cross wall back here. Uh, there is some paper and pencils in the pews. Dr. Blosser has asked us to have that available in case you want to take some notes as he goes along. And the series thing is the Passion of Jesus because, as you may or may not know, we're in the church season of Lent, which is the 40-day period leading up to Easter. And we focus ourselves upon Christ uh, during this season, and especially uh, for Holy Week, the um, suffering, death, and resurrection, and thus the theme for our series. Uh, we do have some postcards available, and I will pass those out in a few minutes. It has the addresses of these three churches that I just talked about, uh, where the other lectures will be. So you can take that with you and give it to a friend or put it on your fridge. Uh, so that we can utilize these lectures well. But I'd like to have a prayer, if we could bow our heads together uh, before I introduce our guest. Lord, thank you for this evening and for this gathering and for each and every person here. Thank you for the old, old story of your son Jesus, our Savior, and his love for us and for the world. And we thank you very much for how you have brought together this series of lectures to help us all think about why it is that he came into the world and what he did while he was here and the hope and the promise he provides for us here and now. Be with uh, Dr. Blosser tonight. Thank you for his, his talents and for his skills and his gift and for his answering the call to, to uh, teach. And we pray that tonight our ears and eyes would be open uh, to this passion story. For it's in Christ's name we ask. Amen. All right, Dr. Blosser, Reverend Dr. Joe Blosser, um, is 
the Associate Professor of Religion and Philosophy, one of them at High Point University. He's been teaching there and leading there since 2011, I believe, is that correct? Uh, he also serves as Robert G. Culp, Jr., Director of Service Learning there at High Point University. And if you know about that university and, and its uh, growth, uh, one of the things that is very impactful about it is the service learning of students. And there are hundreds of thousands of hours uh, served in the High Point City region every year by the students through this program. And they are simply going out and serving Christ by serving others. Uh, Dr. Blosser holds degrees um, as follows, a PhD from the University of Chicago in religious ethics, a Master's of Divinity from Vanderbilt University in theology, preaching, and ethics, and a Bachelor of Science from Texas Christian University in religion and economics. And he is a Missourian, is that what you would call yourself, from Missouri. Uh, he's married and he has a son and a daughter. And so that's all I'm going to say because that's about all I know. Let's uh, <laughs> welcome him tonight. Thank you for being here. We appreciate it very Thank much. you. Thank you. Um, I really appreciate the chance to be here uh, with some good Methodists. Well, at least a Methodist. I don't know if you're good or not. We'll figure that out. Um, I'm ordained in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ, uh, but I attend a cooperative Baptist church because that's what was around the corner when we moved to High Point, and we really liked the idea of just being able to walk to church, uh, so that was really nice. So it's really a pleasure to be with you all uh, tonight, and I gotta say, I'm really impressed by those of you who traveled, like where this isn't your home church. That is always the struggle when we kind of put together these church partnerships is like, will, your, will the home team travel, you know? Will you go? And I'm really impressed. That speaks highly to the collaborative nature um, of your conference and your willingness uh, to work together. Uh, and in Baptist world, we don't travel very well because we're always anxious that the Baptist church we're going to is gonna be the wrong kind of Baptist church. Because only our Baptist church is the right kind of Baptist church. Yeah, so we don't travel as well with that. But um, yeah, so the, let me say just a brief word. You're going to be hearing from four High Point University professors um, over the next couple of weeks. This is a really special place, and some unique things have happened at our university. It is a United Methodist University. Um, so I just want to highlight this for you for a moment. Um, Al Ward, uh, Reverend Al Ward, who some of you may know, he's pastor at Wesley Memorial and has been in the Western Conference apparently for quite a while. Um, I got to know him in 2011 when I came as the director of service learning. One of the first things I did was I went out and met with uh, local pastors uh, to try to get a lay of the land of what nonprofits are out there, what were the needs, where were people serving, where could our students kind of step in because university students can't carry the load on their own because they're only good for about maybe 20 weeks a year, right? You get a five weeks here and then they're gone for fall break and you get five more weeks here and then they're gone for winter break and then, right? So student labor can't kind of carry a nonprofit. So we have to kind of really step into play a supporting role. And Al was one of the first folks that I got to know and it was really a pleasure for me when he came uh, retired 
uh, from Wesley Memorial and came to High Point University, uh, where, of course, Dr. Cobain is the president of our university. He was a member at Wesley Memorial. Uh, wanted to keep his pastor close to him, brought him in at the university um, as our chaplain in residence. Uh, Bishop Stockton had held that role for many years. Some of you may have uh, known the bishop. Um, he's been wonderful and is still around the university, still goes to hospitals to visit our students when they are in the hospital. Um, but it's been great having Al there. He's really been helping us reach out to the community. Um, we are a department that when I joined, there were seven of us, there are now 14 of us, uh, because the university has grown from about 1,200 students 12 years ago to over 5,000 undergraduate students and another 700 graduate students with graduate degrees up to doctorate degrees in the health sciences and education and business and communication, all these areas. Uh, so I'm excited we have a few who uh, will in four years be alums uh, of High Point University. Four years, we're holding them to it, right? No fifth years around here, right? Um, so as a university, we've been able to specialize and bring in some really amazing faculty. And one of the unique things about our school is that we grew right in the midst of the uh, Great Recession, which um, in the kind of academic world, all hiring across the United States shut down from like 2009 to 2013 in academic circles. Uh, like nobody was hiring. The year I got my PhD in 2011, I went out looking for jobs. There were four in the nation, four. High Point University was one of them. The faculty that we were able to bring in are from the top, almost every single faculty person we have is from a top five university in their field. Um, and that has led to this exceptionally rich group of colleagues um, that do this work really well and really intentionally. Uh, many of us, five of us, are ordained ministers. Um, and while we don't have quite the student population that is seeking ordination that we did a couple of years ago, um, we do teach every student at the university takes a religion class with us. Um, so that's still part, uh, one of the marks of the university. Um, that is a requirement that all students take a religion class. Now there are a wide variety of religion classes that they can take. Um, most of our students take their class within the uh, Christian tradition in some way, but that's, some of that is Old Testament, New Testament. I teach uh, the modern and contemporary Christian theology classes, all sorts of things that they could take to fulfill that requirement. Uh, but yeah, all students take that with us. So you'll hear from four of our great faculty over the next few weeks, and I can't say enough about my colleagues. Um, they are incredibly gifted teachers, and I really hope that you'll be able to make time in your schedules to come and hear them. I wish I could come and hear them, um, but you'll really be blessed if you're able to do that. So that's my plea for you to come and hear uh, the great speakers who are gonna come um, over the next three weeks. Uh, and again, to thank you for inviting me to be here today. So we're in Lent. We're thinking about Easter. We're preparing in this lecture series over the next four weeks to be thinking about the passion of our Lord and Savior. I think one of the great challenges and gifts of being a pastor and being in that role is every year having to come specifically to this season, also the Christmas season, 
and challenge yourself to see the text anew, to hear the story, the saving story of our faith in a new way. Because it's so easy to fall into the same routine. And oh yeah, it's Easter again, I know what that means. And, but to try to shake things loose so that you can see with fresh eyes just how remarkable the story of our faith is. And this is what I'll you know, speak for my religion classes. It's what I'm trying to do in class all the time, is take students who've seen and understood and thought about Christianity and their faith in one way and, and shake them from those kind of doldrums and get them to see the relevance and the power of the story. And the only way to see that is to continually challenge yourself to come back to the well, to come back to the scriptures, to come back to the people and things that make you most in touch with your faith. For me, one of the tools that I have found really helpful in my faith are Jesus movies. So that's what I'm going to talk about tonight. Now, this is a special subgenre of movies that some people loathe because a lot of them are really cheesy. But I really like them because for me, they make me ask really difficult questions that when I just kind of, when I'm reading across scripture, I can sometimes just assume things in my mind, like, oh yeah, this is how it is. But when you think of a director that actually has to stage that moment and try to play it out, they have to make a thousand little choices about how that happened. And each of those choices bears tremendous theological significance. So that's what I want to talk to you about tonight. And we're going to watch two clips from two different Jesus movies. And part of the reason you have paper and pencil is because I may ask you to jot some things down about your own Jesus movie and how this might work for you. But I, just as there are over, over the centuries, there have been numerous ways of interacting with Scripture. You may have heard of like Lectio Divino, right, as a way that you can come to Scripture anew. Um, Midrash as a way that Jewish scholars come to Scripture, right, to imagine and think with Scripture. Um, I think thinking about Scripture through film is one of those ways because it really pushes us to think about what we actually think might have happened. So, um, that's the question that I want to start with, is what really happened? I want you to think about the key parts of the passion narrative. And for today, well, I'm going to really compress this because I couldn't show you, like, 30 to 40 minute long segments, right? Some of these Jesus movies, um, Jesus is born and does Jesus's ministry in the first 15 minutes of the film and the next hour and a half is the passion. Well, you go, okay, so what's the theology of the person who wrote that script, <laughs> right? Their emphasis on who Jesus is, is on the passion. It's not on the teaching 
of Christ. Where there are other Jesus movies where you get like 10 minutes left in the film and you're like, I know what happens at the end of this movie. How is there only 10? And they, I mean, the passion is like the last 10 minutes. They just go through that real quick because their emphasis is on the life of Jesus. And isn't that an interesting theological choice? So one of the first questions you can start to ask yourself is in your two-hour Jesus movie, you're not going to be allowed to make a Gospel of St. Matthew Jesus movie that clocked in at over four hours. But if you were making a two-hour Jesus movie, how much time do you devote to the passion of Jesus? How much time do you devote to that part of the Jesus story that starts maybe for tonight, we're not even going back to the Garden of Gethsemane, tonight we're really talking about kind of the specific moment of the cross. And I'm going to show you what a couple of films do with that moment. And all of this is about pushing you to ask that question, what do you think really happened? How do you think it really played out? And to push you to think about who your Savior is on the cross. Now, each of the Gospels play this out differently. And you may have heard of the seven sayings of Jesus, those seven last uh, words of Jesus uh, that in different traditions are often read um, over, you know, on the, the evening before Christmas and the vigils. Um, each of the, the Gospels tell this story a little bit differently. And one of my professors, um, a woman named A.J. Levine, who's a Jewish New Testament scholar at Vanderbilt Divinity School, she would say, because of course Jesus was a Jew, so of course a Jewish woman should be a New Testament scholar. It's a book all about a Jew, right? And people are like, well, you're a Jewish New Testament scholar. Why are you doing teaching Christians about Jesus? Like, well, he was a Jew. Who else should be teaching Christians about Jesus, right? So she was actually part of um, the kind of group of scholars that were informing uh, Mel Gibson in the making of the Passion. Um, now, there's some, some interesting stuff that went on there. Uh, she's not a fan of the film. But one of the books that she authored afterward in collaboration with some other scholars went line by line through Mel Gibson's Passion and took each line and assigned it a color. It was uh, you know, blue if it came from the Gospel of Matthew, it was yellow if it came from Mark, it was green if it came from Luke, uh, purple if it came from John, and red if it came from Mel Gibson's head. <laughs> you can probably guess which color the script is dominantly. But the gospel that it draws on most distinctively is John, which is fitting once you kind of get inside Mel Gibson's head, which is a strange place to be. Um, but in each of these Jesus movies, some of them will just flat out tell you. I mean, there is the gospel of St. Matthew, and there is the gospel of John. And so there are Jesus movies that follow particular gospels. But this is one of the questions you can ask yourself as you're going through this season and you're encountering the story again is, is your version of this story an amalgam of all of the scriptures? We often think it is. 
But then if you go back and look at the scriptures, you probably will start to feel yourself drawn to a particular version of the story. And so that's another question I think you can have in your minds tonight as we start to look at some of this. So um, I'm going to start with uh, a little musical interlude, and I want you to jot down on your sheet of paper a couple of what you think are key elements of your Jesus movie. So if you were going to craft a Jesus movie, and here I'm going to specifically talk about the passion, right? What would be the key elements that you would highlight? What would you want to make sure that you showed? And I just want you to write down those things that stick out in your mind. You don't need to race, you know, grab for your Bible and try to do cheat sheet stuff. I'm not collecting it. There's no grade. What sticks out in your mind as what you would want to make sure got depicted? Is it a longing glance between Jesus and his mother on the cross? Is it the pain? Is it the reverence of those who are watching? Is it the horrible atrocity and the blood and the torture? What are the elements that you would highlight? All right, so I'm going to give you a couple minutes uh, while I play a little piece here. After the crucifixion of one Jesus of Nazareth, Roman soldiers and guards cast lots or roll dice for the only piece of property that he had in the world, and that was the robe, his scarlet robe. And it was one Roman soldier, legend and tradition has it, that carried the robe away. And for years after that, he was like a man who had lost his mind. He would turn to this one and that one, and he would say, were you out there when we crucified him? Were you there? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they okay, crucified my Okay, now this is your chance to write. I know Johnny Cash Lord. and Carter sisters, you know, Carter family, you, you want to watch, but this is your chance to write. Think. If you were there, what would you have seen? Causes me to tremble. Okay, now, 
We're going to get back to Johnny Cash in a few minutes. This isn't the last you've seen of him tonight. <clears throat> I'm currently, I've had a long obsession with Johnny Cash. I'm writing an article right now that'll be out on him soon. I was friends with his grandson when I was in Nashville and wrote a lot about kind of his faith life. So anyway, you're going to get some of that in just a minute. Um, so why does this stuff matter? I want to give you two examples that I want you to be watching for in the clips that, we, that I'm going to play here in just a minute of why thinking about the way that we depict Jesus and the passion matters. So first, think about how you would play Jesus' interaction with the women who are around this passion narrative. And we hear them throughout scripture. So in Luke 23, 28, Jesus says, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. How would you, as a director, direct that line? Is Jesus mournful? Do not weep for me. Weep for you and your children. Is he angry? Do not weep for me, but weep for you and your children. Is he frustrated with them? Is he despondent about it? Is this the, Lord, let this cup pass from me, resignation of what's happening? How would you play that line? Furthermore, what about the women at the crucifixion? You're going to see this in the scenes, right? So there's this line where we get that Mary and Mary Magdalene are present. Are they on their knees, tearing their hair out, weeping, crying, despondent? Are they aghast? They cannot believe this is happening? Or has Mary, who has treasured all of these things in her heart, is she standing there with a knowing silence? Because she's known that this day was coming. That motherly intuition is not surprised. She knows. And when Jesus says, you know, this is your son and this is your mother, is that a moment of crying and pain and tears or is that a moment of acceptance? How would you play Jesus' interaction with the women? Another place to consider is how would you play the soldiers who are present? How is it that they're casting lots? Are they, are they mean? Are they bad people? Are they doing this because they're underpaid and they don't have money and Jesus was wearing a nice cloak and that might provide food for one of their families? What about when in John, Jesus declares, I'm thirsty, and they give him wine, the wine vinegar to drink? Is this a soldier shoving it up there like, yeah, take this? Or is it done with compassion? Was it kindness, pity, disdain? What about the soldier who pierces Jesus' side and then gives his testimony? The soldier in Luke who declares, surely this was a righteous man. You'll hear it in a little bit different version. But what about that soldier? There's a tendency in a lot of these Jesus movies to play the soldiers as evil people. But how often have Christians been the ones who've crucified our Christ? What would it be like as a director to play them as good, wholesome people? Give the soldiers a backstory about doing their jobs for their families and 
this is respectable work and a decent pay. And lots of people get crucified, and most of them are horrible thieves, awful people. What would it be like as a director to give your soldiers a backstory? All of these sorts of decisions are things that filmmakers get to make. And when they make them in different ways, they jar loose our theology. It's like shaking the cobwebs out, and they make us make choices that otherwise we don't have to make. When we just kind of read along through scripture, we can think of it the way we want to think of it. And here's somebody showing us on screen, no, no, you're going to think of it my way. And that makes us make choices. All right, so we're going to start with the greatest story ever told. This is a 1965 film produced for $20 million. This was a very expensive film when it came out. And it pretty well captures the kind of uh, ethos of Jesus of the late 1950s and early 1960s. Um, it did not have great box office success or acclaim. It was described by multiple reviewers as resembling a Hallmark postcard in the way that it was depicted. But in many ways, it captured a cultural moment. So I want you to see how the passion is played in this film. And as you're watching it, ask yourself, um, is this how you pictured this happening? And if not, what, what about this isn't the way that you thought it was supposed to go? And then what theology or approach to Christianity does this film seem to offer? What do you think is kind of in the director's mind? What kind of theology might they hold about who Jesus is that's coming to the surface here? Thank God. My God, why hast thou forsaken me? Yeah, it's almost caressing his face.
Okay, how would you describe that? What words would you use to describe that scene? Just Hollywood. Hollywood. Shout out some words. Over the top. Over the top. Told you, Hallmark card, right? Doesn't it? What else? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. The way that the music was playing. How did it make you feel? Detached? No real sense of suffering, right? Compare this, if you saw Mel Gibson's passion. Oh, I was like sick to my stomach from the amount of blood in that movie, right? This is not wanting you to look away. This is a Jesus whose death is inviting you to look at it. I want you to watch this. It was a pretty death. It doesn't look painful. He didn't look in agony. He got a little thirsty. But they were real gentle, you know, wafting it up there. Is this how it happens for you? No. Oh, pretty, pretty adamantly no. For folks of a particular generation, this did seem to resonate. Or at least at a particular time in American history, this did resonate fairly well. It was a pretty successful film among church groups. It was not successful broadly, secularly, but pretty successful among church groups. It's one of the most reverent of the Jesus movies, right? You, you see the folks um, standing around Jesus, almost like they're, like they're at a um, sunrise service for Easter. You know, Mary's not particularly afflicted. She does a, you know, she had to catch herself there real quick, but she's not like bawling her eyes out. No one is screaming and yelling. Um, so as we look at, I mean, these, these are just fascinating, right? Um, the next one I want to show you is a bit different. This is Johnny Cash's Jesus movie. Now, how many of you know that Johnny Cash filmed a Jesus movie? We've got one. All right. So follow-up question. How many of you know that Johnny Cash wrote a novel called The Man in White? Yeah. Oh, all right. We've got a, a Man in White reader. He also has an autobiography called Cash by Johnny Cash, which is very good. Um, but Man in White is a fictional retelling of the life of St. Paul, to whom he felt spiritually connected. That was his kind of connection, Paul's thorn in the side. Uh, that's what... Cash described as his addiction to amphetamines was like um, Paul's thorn in the side. Until in the late 80s, he was on his exotic animal ranch and was gutted uh, from here down to his belt buckle by an ostrich. And he fell and he hit his head, and that was his road to Damascus moment as he was recovering from being attacked by an ostrich. Uh, which he then took a two-by-four and beat over the head with before he passed out. Um, he again got addicted to methamphetamines, but it was after that addiction that he um, found Christ for the third time and the, the, the last time that he got addicted. Um, and it's after that that he wrote his uh, Man in White. So in 1973, Johnny Cash um, goes uh, to Israel and films this on site in Israel. 
it's one of only two of the kind of traditional Jesus movies pre-2000 that's filmed on site in Israel. Both of them filmed in 1973. Uh, bonus points to whoever knows the other. Jesus Christ Superstar, also 1973, filmed on site in Israel. Um, I was trying to show you, I was going to show you clips of it, but it was hard to find a short clip of that one on The Passion. But, um, so, Johnny Cash's Jesus movie is classic Cash. There is a two-album um, LP that came out of it that's all the music from it, but it's an entire movie of Johnny Cash narrating the life of Jesus and walking around Jerusalem with his Bible reading. Jesus almost never speaks. Uh, he doesn't call disciples until like the last half hour of the movie because he's like a loner Jesus. He does everything by himself. Um, but I want you to watch about 10 minutes here of the end of this because I think Cash makes some of the most interesting theological moves. Um, these are in many ways informed by his relationship with Billy Graham. So for those of you who have followed Billy Graham's ministry, who have maybe personally been informed by Billy Graham's ministry, have some elements of that theology in your own kind of theological uh, formation, you may see some of this stuff that's like, oh, okay, I see where this might be coming from. Um, so as you watch this, be thinking, what do these depictions say about who Johnny Cash thinks Jesus is? He has a very particular view of who he thinks Jesus is. And what theology do you think is going on behind the scenes here? All right, so let me pull this one up real quick. Yes, of course it's having trouble. Because I bet my phone Wi-Fi stopped working for a minute until I can refresh it. So I want you to know, there's nobody here. Now first, this is a B-rated movie. He didn't have any budget for extras. But what does it say theologically? Yeah, 
Yes, blonde Jesus. Blonde hair, blue eyed Jesus. Um, theologically, Max Lucado has this line where he says, um, let me talk over the, mil- the film, that if no one had been there to kill Jesus, he would have done it himself. Because that was the plan. Right? It wasn't the Romans who killed Jesus or the Jews who killed Jesus. Jesus had to die. That was the salvation plan. And you see this in Cassius' film. There don't have to be other people there. Jesus was going to accomplish the mission that Jesus came to earth to accomplish. Now, you're seeing scenes here interspersed with earlier parts of the film where uh, Jesus is being baptized, the dove is descending. That's what you're seeing there. June Carter Cash there uh, playing Mary Magdalene. one on his right and one on his left. 
to one of them who believed on him. He said, this day shall you be with me in paradise. Okay, that is the first time in the film that it breaks the kind of ancient narrative, and all of a sudden it pops into the contemporary city. All right, so we're going to talk about that in just a second, but I cheated you out of the best line of the greatest story ever told. There you go. Okay, sorry. I didn't want to cheat you out of John Wayne's cameo in The Greatest Story Ever Told, right? I was talking about how do you play the soldiers. Take like one of the most well-known, well-liked actors in American history and make him be the soldier who says, truly this man was the Son of God. Awesome. Right. Okay, so in the Gospel Road, what did you see? What stood out to you? June Carter Cash <laughs> as Mary Magdalene. No tears. A little bit more violent. Yeah. Yeah, the music again is playing a big role. Yep. Yep. The whole thing's filmed like a western. You would think that Jesus was packing a little something under that robe, the way that he walked around. He cleansed the temple all by himself. No disciples were there. It's just Jesus throwing over tables. Right. And so this, in that film, when Jesus has his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, it's the exact same thing. It's Jesus going down the street, 
on a donkey with all this crowd noise and no people. So the crucifixion directly mirrors the triumphal entry into Jerusalem for him. But it is that theological idea of this had to be done. And that's a, it's a very Billy Graham, it's a very Johnny Cash kind of way of thinking about Jesus. This had to be accomplished. And how many times, I didn't let you watch all of them. Jesus actually dies, I think, eight times in the film. Right? You saw the crescendo and the... And it just happens over and over and over. And each time is a different city. Pulls back and it's a different city. Right? And so what, what is he saying? What, what's Cash trying to get across? Yeah. Jesus is crucified on the streets, right? This is the man in black who, for the poor and the beaten down, living on the hopeless, hungry side of town, right? I mean, that was Cash's mission. He wrote the first Native American protest album. He wrote albums fighting for prisoners' rights. He's like, we're crucifying Jesus every day in the streets of our cities. That was his message. Doesn't that fit well with Billy Graham's One Way, The Jesus Way, 1970s camp? Like, right? So what I think is so fascinating about these films is the way that they make choices. And you got, they're cheesy, right? You're watching this. It's almost painful to watch them sometimes. But when you're watching with that theological eye, with a kind of reverence of how can I build my faith off of this? How can this challenge my faith? You can watch these films in a really different light, not for like their cinematic quality. But how can they help me grow? How can they push the way that I think about who my Jesus is? Would my Mary have been crying? Would she have been upset? Would my soldiers have been mocking Jesus? So I listed up here three of my other favorite Jesus movies uh, that I'm going to talk about here real quick. I left my phone up here. What time am I at? Okay, so Last Temptation of Christ. Has anybody seen The Last Temptation of Christ? This was a highly acclaimed film. It's part of the Criterion Collection of these kind of long, old films that have great critical acclaim. Uh, but this is Nikos Kazantzakis wrote a novel called The Last Temptation of Christ. This is the film adaptation. Willem Dafoe plays Jesus, does a phenomenal job of playing Jesus. Um, the Last Temptation, I'm going to give a little bit of a spoiler here. Um, the Last Temptation of Christ is to get off the cross. So if you think about Jesus in the desert and the temptations during the Lenten season that Jesus goes through in the, in the wilderness. Well, the final temptation in kind of Kazantzakis' view is that Jesus is the Son of God. He could have dang well got off that cross if he wanted to. And so, in the novel and in the film, you know, Defoe is up on the cross, being crucified. And it, it's bloody, it's painful, Mary is crying and weeping, and the disciples are in the distance weeping, the soldiers are angry and uh, mocking and shaking their fists and yelling at him. And this little girl walks up and says, you don't have to do this. Come, come with me, come with me and takes Jesus down off the cross. And he goes with the little girl, who looks very angelic. Spoiler, she's the devil. But she looks really angelic. <clears throat> Jesus goes with her. 
uh, marries Mary Magdalene, has some children, and watches everything fall apart. Gets into an argument with Paul, because Paul's saying Jesus did all this stuff, and Jesus starts arguing with Paul. No, I didn't. I didn't say that stuff. And Paul's like, I don't care. I don't care if you are Jesus. I don't care if you said this or not. This is right. I don't care what you did. And in the last moment, it's like everything is crumbling. Literally, Jerusalem is falling and burning in flames behind him. He goes, I really messed up. Oh, God, please put me back on the cross. And then you're back at the crucifixion. And that this is like the last temptation of Jesus was to get off the cross, but Jesus sees this is what has to be accomplished. Right? Now, of course, that book and film was banned by the Catholic Church and lots of others saying, you know, don't watch this. But I think it's a really powerful way to think about the humanity of Jesus. And that's what the last temptation of Christ is trying to push. Lots of other Jesus films want to push how divine Jesus is. Right? You get that in the greatest story ever told. Of course he's not in pain. He's God. But the last temptation wants to say, what if you really seriously take Jesus' humanity. A human would want to get off that cross if they could get off that cross. Right? Jesus Christ Superstar. How many of you have seen Jesus Christ Superstar? Uh, either film or in play or um, there was an NBC version of it like a year or two ago. It was like on TV. It was kind of random. Um, so Jesus Christ Superstar, 1973. It was like that and Godspell are the kind of hippie Jesus, Jesus movies, right? What if Jesus were a hippie? And this was, you know, there was, a, there was a cultural moment for this. Because, of course, hippies are outcasts from society and kind of radicals. And so, yeah, you know, if you're choosing drugs or Jesus, choose Jesus, right? It's the, the hippie Jesus culture. Um, and in Jesus Christ Superstar, you get a kind of, fantastical retelling of the Christ story. And when I say fantastical, I mean it's not trying to be historically accurate. right? It's a play within a play. So you have a troupe of actors who are coming together to put on the Jesus play out in the wilderness of Israel. And they're singing and dancing and having a good time and doing this story. And what it's pushing, though, isn't the historical Jesus. But it's trying to make Jesus relatable to people's lives, which is what was happening in the 1970s among the kind of hippie Jesus movement. Jesus is relevant to your life where you are. You don't have to be in the church. You can find Jesus wherever. Jesus could be, you know, doing Motown. Right? Jesus is out there. And so it was trying to connect with people in a really different kind of way. Um, and so what I like about it is that that film is pushing um, our kind of traditional concepts of Jesus and trying to get us to imagine them. It also has, there are just horrible problems with the film too, but theologically, uh, but it's fun to watch and it makes you think about places where you might differ with it. All right, the last one I'm gonna mention, I really wanted to show you the clip, but I just didn't feel like I could do just full on Jesus nudity um, on a Tuesday night in a Methodist church in Pleasant Garden, where I hadn't visited before, and I'd like to be able to come back again. And I don't want to be, do you remember that High Point University professor who came and showed us, like, Jesus' behind 
full-on screen, and every Sunday morning you're sitting in the pews thinking about that time you had to look at it. So I'm sparing you, but you can go and Google Jesus of Montreal crucifixion, um, and you can watch that for yourself. Um, my wife was like, oh, it's not so bad, you'll be fine, but then they picked Jesus up, kind of like a bag of potatoes, and turned toward you, and it's, you don't want to see this. All right. But Jesus of Montreal is one of my absolute favorite Jesus movies. And here's the basic premise. It's another play within a play. So it's about a troupe of, care, of actors who are putting on a Jesus, uh, the, the uh, passion play, right? So it has an audience that's following the troupe of actors around to the different stations of the cross. But what's really fascinating about this Jesus movie is in the play within a play, um, the guy who's directing that play really wants to be historically accurate. So he's going to Bible scholars and he's getting kind of how did this really go down. And as they're leading the audience from the station of the cross to the station of the cross, they're giving historical context about how crucifixion was used and how it's pretty normal and you'd find these crosses all over the place. And, so it's really intent on the kind of historical reality of how things went down. But then the person who's playing Jesus himself becomes a Jesus figure. There's a subplot with a murdered kid, and this actor who's playing Jesus ends up dying in the film, a kind of sacrificial death. And so you get within this a modern-day Jesus story as that Jesus is acting out the traditional passion narrative. <coughs> so you'll have to read subtitles, because it's in French. <coughs> but I wanna, I'd highly recommend it, other than a few brief scenes of nudity where you can look away. Um, but these, I think these three films all pushed the kind of Jesus story in different ways. Now, there are probably 50 different Jesus movies that you could go and watch. And there are a lot of contemporary ones um, as well that have aired in recent years. My challenge to you would be, over this Lenten season, to watch one of them. And don't just watch it for entertainment, but watch it as a kind of spiritual discipline or spiritual practice. Let yourself think, do I agree with this? Is this how I would play it? Pause it after particular moments and ask yourself that question. Is this how I think it would have happened? Is this how my Jesus would have reacted? And then why or why not? And what does that say about you? Maybe less importantly, what does it say about the director? You're not trying to write an article on the film. What does it say about you and how you think about Christ? So the last thing I'm going to um, leave you with, before I'll take some questions and all, is just creating your own Jesus movie. Again, as another kind of spiritual practice over this Lenten season. What if you were to challenge yourself to think out your own Jesus movie? Who would play Jesus? What actor would you pick? Would it be a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus? Would it be a realistic Jesus movie? Would you be trying to be historically accurate? You want the pain of crucifixion to look like the pain of crucifixion? Or would it be imaginative? Um, would it be um, playful? Would it be a musical? 
Are you fixated in your own kind of view of Jesus? Are you fixated on the historical Jesus or on the Christ of faith? And how would you play that? How does Jesus relate to people? To the women, to the thieves, to the soldiers? Would your Jesus movie follow one gospel, or would it be a mix of several of them? And so I've listed up here the final words of Jesus. How would he say these? Which ones would you have him say? Matthew, Mark, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Luke, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Also in Luke, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Also in Luke, Father, into, my, into thy hands I commit my spirit. John, woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. John, I thirst. And John, it is finished. The greatest story ever told, he says, every single one of them. Right? That's how they played. That's the decision that was made in that film. What decisions would you make in yours? All right. Um, there's a whole other series of lectures that could be on... Uh, like, this is explicit Jesus movies. There are implicit Jesus movies, and we could talk about Cool Hand Luke and The Matrix and all these other movies that have, like, Jesus characters that aren't explicitly Jesus movies. Those would also be fun to go and watch. But for tonight, we'll leave it at a couple of Jesus movies here. So thank you all for having me. Um, like I said, I'm willing to, to answer some questions if we want to do that for a couple minutes. Okay. Yeah, so if you got questions, I don't know, I might be able to answer something. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. And you see that in pretty much every Jesus movie. At the end of the day, these are movies that had to make money. So they had to appeal to audiences. So they had to strike some sort of cultural moment, some sort of, they had to draw people into the theater. So there is that, that kind of aspect. There are, you know, Johnny Cash's is probably one of the closest to, he was just making it as his own faith exercise. Cash wasn't thinking he was going to get rich off this thing. He nearly went broke making it. I don't know if you know much about Johnny Cash's life, but he died basically broke, right? Um, if you want to see some images of the end of Johnny Cash's life, go and watch the music video to the song Hurt that was on his American 3 album. And if you watch the music video to that, um, it shows the House of Cash, uh, which is the museum outside Nashville, like it's falling apart, right? Um, so anyway, Cash wasn't trying to make money. He's one of the few that you could point to and say, not a big production, mostly just his faith. He wanted to do this as his own faith exercise. Basically, all of the others, they are trying to turn, you know, they, they've got big production budgets and they're trying to turn money. So yeah, I think absolutely um, the, the cultural moment and the technology that's available plays a big role. I think part of the reason Cash's people don't talk a whole lot is because I don't think they had the money to make the audio work, right? The wind is like blowing. You know how hard it is to get a mic to zone in when the wind, I mean, right? 
This thing pops if I just move a little bit. Can you imagine the wind blowing and trying to get the mics right? Yeah, I mean, so Jesus doesn't talk. Cash talks for him because you can do that in the, you know, you can do that post-production. Yeah, good question, though. Please. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You get a, uh, a hair dancing out on the uh, on the raft, right? Yeah. No. Uh, so Jesus Christ Superstar is an interesting case. Um, it's actually part of a long tradition in the Christian tradition that is a kind of a minority version of the telling of the, of the story of Judas. You see that story in Jesus Christ Superstar come up and in The Last Temptation of Christ. In those two Jesus movies, and there are only two that I'm aware of, um, Judas gets reclaimed as, as not in this evil, awful, terrible person. So in Jesus Christ Superstar, yes, he's got the lead song, right? Jesus Christ Superstar. That, that song is sung by Judas. And at the end, Judas descends at the end of the film wearing all white hanging at the bottom of the cross. Right. Don't. Right. So you get, you get this kind of reclamation that it wasn't Judas's fault, right? He was a pawn. This had to happen. Don't blame it on Judas. In The Last Temptation of Christ, Judas is Jesus' best friend. And Jesus has this moment with Judas where he is yelling at him saying, you have to betray me. You have to do this. This is the way it goes. And Judas is like, no way. Not doing it. I didn't sign up for this. It's like, I'm your best friend. I am here to help you. I will not do this to you. And Jesus is like, you absolutely must do this. And he does it for his friend. 
So those two films play that Judas character really differently than we're used to seeing Judas. And both of them make really interesting theological choices. Do you think that Judas really is damned for all time? If Jesus had to die, would God have demanded that someone be in hell forever for the thing that had to happen? That's the theological question that Jesus Christ Superstar is pushing. Mm-hmm. Good. Yeah, see, these are interesting, aren't they? What other questions do you have? Yeah, Mark? Um, the film's been around about 30, 40 years. And I think I read that there's been more movies made about any other Hitler than any other Cold War movie. I would think, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, so the Jesus movie is actually part of a much longer tradition of the Passion Play, right? And so Passion Plays have been around since the early Christians who were reenacting this moment, right? So if you're thinking the earliest of Christians are having to retell this verbally, they don't have scriptures yet, right? We don't get the written gospels until at least 30 years after Jesus' death. So there's this constant need to retell, to, to tell the story. But that telling of the story becomes an enacting of the story, and we know that there are enactments of the story among the early Christians, and especially during the kind of um, medieval era, these become big affairs. And they're still big affairs. There are still places... Um, throughout the world where there are enormous passion plays. So, in a sense, it was, it was made to become a movie, right? Um, and as soon as, yeah, cinematically we could do it, Jesus movies start kind of popping up. Um, I think they were initially, um, you know, is this heresy, right? Was some of the initial questions like, but we all yearn to be there. I think we, you're like, wow, if we could just for a moment be there. And if a Jesus movie can transport you to that place, I think that's the attraction. Um, I think there's also an attraction among filmmakers um, to get the opportunity to make something like that. You know, I think there are actors like Willem Dafoe. Like, Willem Dafoe was a huge name as an actor. He didn't need to go play Jesus. He wanted to play Jesus. Like, wow. What an opportunity. There's also a lot of money to be made, so I don't want to discount that, right? There are people that want to make money, and Jesus sells, right? You can buy Jesus action figures and Jesus underwear and Jesus, I mean, you can buy Jesus on about anything if people will buy it, right? Um, yeah, so I, yeah. Other questions? What's that? 
I'd like to believe that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So the question is, you know, is God inspiring people who make this work? I haven't studied all of the folks. That's what I'm saying, I hope. Um, Cash is who I've studied most intensely. And I'd say absolutely that's what he thought he was doing. He thought that he was being the trumpet sounding Christ's message out to the world. Absolutely part of his faith life. Um, Mel Gibson, too, would have said, I mean, Mel Gibson didn't need the money from the passion. That's not why he made the passion right now. We have our other issues with Mel Gibson. But I do think he made it out of a sense of faith. And I will say this about, so the passion came out when I was in Nashville in Divinity School. You know, Nashville's like the buckle on the Bible belt. Um, And when I went to see the passion, it was playing um, in, so the theater in the, the kind of Vanderbilt area of Nashville had, I think it had 10 theaters. And the passion for about three weeks played in six of them. Right, and it was playing five, six times a day. There were churches whose pastors just set up shop, and they they were just there. People'd come out, they'd pray with them, they'd give them their cards. When I went, I went to see it twice um, with different groups of people, and after each one, there was an altar call. Somebody in the group um, or who was in the audience came down and did an altar call at the end of the Passion. Uh, so. You know, I, I think those films have played that role. And then, you know, Mel Gibson's cast then spent the next year going to churches um, and speaking about their faith in, in churches and showing they do, like, uh, releases just in the church. Um, and so the church could film it and screen it, and then the, the actors would talk. Other questions? Well... I've enjoyed sharing some of my passion for Jesus and film with you, um, and I hope that I've maybe got you thinking a little bit about this stuff. Um, this is a powerful time of year within the Christian calendar. Lent is one of my favorite seasons um, because it's a season where we get to exercise our patience. We get to try to sit with texts and with our own prayer lives, with our own sense of faith, Um, And I find that these sorts of films can help me to do that in different ways, ways that um, I'm sometimes not able to on my own. Uh, And so I hope that's helpful to some of you as you journey throughout uh, the wilderness this season. All right. All right. God be with you all. Thank you.